through the comments of African and Afro-diasporic artists and curators. Southern Thoughts on a Northern Biennale podcast series aims to tell the Biennale as seen from the inside, from those who make it possible through their work. The second podcast introduces the listener to issues related to the insertion of African art to the global market and the ones related to financial resources and the microcosm of power that the Venice Biennale embodied. It also interrogates the potential of the passage in Venice as a significant moment in defining the work and career of artists and for networking and to introduce some suggestion for making that space more accessible. In the 1990s, in line with the aim of integrating African art to the global art market, a series of exhibitions entirely devoted to contemporary African art were curated out of the continent. It was during this period that according to the critic and curator Dagara Dakin, due to the recognized influence that the Biennale of Venice has on affecting art values, the question of the lack of African artists at the show started recurring as a request by the art market. In their seminal book, Contemporary African Art Since 1980, Okui Enezo and Chika Okeke Agulu, while commenting on the increase of African art visibility in the 19, remark that the ever-increasing presence of contemporary African art in global art circuits is seen less as a change in opinion about the artistic competencies of these artists than as a consequence of global pressures, mainly coming from the side of economic interests. Commenting on the Venice Biennale 2022, Valerie Gabakov, director of the First Floor Gallery in Harare in Zimbabwe, highlights an aspect that may alert us to how this observation from the 90s still finds reverberation in current times. In this edition in particular, it is more than manifest that virtually every African artist included had been exhibited at Frise London and or at Art Basel in the previous year, and less than half of those African-born artists in the exhibition live and work on the continent. If Venice is to be a genuine pulse-taking of contemporary art around the world, something has to change. As we saw in the previous podcast, money occupies a central place in the discussion of the Venice Biennale. It does this on different layers. It connects directly with the elitism, the inaccessibility and the exclusivity that Venice blatantly expresses but also directly to financial and geopolitical issues. Who has the power to control the financial value behind so much glamour? And what are the concrete manifestations of this value? Which interests does it hide and cover? In this sense, the South African journalist Hazel Friedman defines Biennales more as institutions than events, constitute a microcosm of power relations in the real world, and the capacity to navigate this microcosm is not so obvious. As Natchankua Rendorf, artist from the Ghana Pavilion, said, it is not only about accessibility, but also about how you are prepared to defend your presence in that space. 
you know, everybody's a bit more social, a bit more accessible in a way, but they also don't want to be, you know, bogged down with having to have serious discussions about stuff or whatever. So this is, I guess, where my point about not really having expectations or having some sort of other ulterior motive came in for me. So I maybe didn't, was not as aggressive as one could be. Um, in terms of like making connections with, mm-hmm. I suppose, the right people. For anyone seeking to understand or observe the ongoing development of contemporary globalization, the magnificence of the Venice Biennale offers one of the best laboratories of the contradictions that lie behind The Shining. One seemingly obvious but still not sufficiently investigated observation comes from the findings of Amarildo Ayase's doctoral thesis. It reveals that on the base of linguistic and post-colonial networks, do countries have different sources of where they can get knowledge and support to materialize their participation in the Venice Biennale. English-speaking countries are those that attend in bigger numbers. A similar observation was made by the Sami Pavilion co-curator Katia Garcia Anton regarding the circulation and participation of indigenous artists in the global art world. There is this um, sort of English-speaking network, which is a network of power in a way, and of funding possibilities, which has an impact on the global indigenous world. What does this mean? It means that, you know, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, you know, the Arts Council there provides funding for indigenous uh, questions. And, you know, generally and structurally, Aotearoa, New Zealand is 20 years ahead to what Mm. happens here in in Norway or in the Nordic region, as is in Turtle Island, Canada. And so it means that somehow the networks, the indigenous networks in in Aotearoa, New Zealand, are very strongly connected with, uh, you know, Aboriginal Australia and also with First Nations in Canada. So they form this sort of triangle this sort of super highway uh, where they do things together, they exchange, they, mm. their scholarships are together, they send delegations mm-hmm. back and forth, and of course they all speak English so they can talk to each other, but it's also because there is a structural connectivity there for mm-hmm. funding and for academia um, mm. where they're connected. And that has led to somehow, you know, an exclusion mm. of other indigenous uh, networks, whether they be in Latin America, you know, where maybe Spanish or Portuguese is a kind of like lingua franca, yes. or whether it be in different parts of Asia, where actually English could be, they're just not so connected, mm-hmm. or even whether it be in, in Africa or in, in, in the Middle East, Definitely. right? I think it's a structural issue. I think the English-speaking indigenous world uh, and funding world is aware of it, more and more, and are slowly beginning to kind of deconstruct that. But it is a big issue. The least innocuous observation in Amarildo Ayase's doctoral thesis concerns money. To be in Venice requires hundreds of thousands of dollars in production, insurance, and transportation fees, not to mention for the artists a lot of time at work in the studio and visa applications. Core financing typically comes from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or Culture Ministry. 
or an independent charitable body that receives funds from the government, such as the British Council in the UK. But the diplomatic officialdom that the Biennale evokes often obscures the significant role that private money plays in the event. Artists and curators have to fundraise to cover the costs, which include the materials required to construct the work, the shipping of these materials, insurance, flights and accommodation in the Biennale city, as well as the salaries and associated costs of hiring a technical team to install the work at the Biennale, when this is not provided by the Biennale itself, which is pretty common. Artists who do not have access to government funding solicit money from foundations and private donors and frequently ask their galleries for financial assistance. But then they have to split the proceeds of each sale of the work with them. This is the first evidence of unequal access to resources between Western countries more likely to receive support from public funds and countries from the Southern Hemisphere whose public funds are destined to other priorities or simply not directed to art and culture in general. Roger Ballen, artist from the South African Pavilion, says... Just look, just go take a look yourself at some of those pavilions and see who sponsored those pavilions. These are some of the largest companies in the world, the largest and most wealthy individuals and companies in the world and governments sponsoring some of these things. Now, if you go to uh, some of the countries, say in Africa, you're not going to find this. You're not going to find this. It's almost impossible to raise money. Fadzai Muchemwa, curator of the Zimbabwean Pavilion, says... I think the national pavilion format is problematic um, because uh, the Zimbabwean pavilion uh, obviously does not have the same budget as the U.S. pavilion. And this format continues to showcase those inequalities that you were talking about to show that, oh, this is a developing nation's uh, pavilion. Uh, Look at how they have presented their work. Because venue size, venue location is determined by budgets, isn't it? So the format itself will continue to showcase those inequalities. Akaya Kerunen from the Uganda Pavilion says, In my experience of art making has been to struggle looking for budgets and everything. So to get there and see the level of funding or finance that is put towards some work and how I keep thinking how that money would be used differently if given even to 10, 15, 20 artists out of Uganda alone to do something. Wow! The things they would do with quarter or even a tenth of the budget that other artists got to have during the Biennale and what they achieved with that money. It's interesting. Colin Segajugu from the Uganda Pavilion says, Our differences between the global south from the north are always drawn by needs or wants versus the existence of resources and adequate infrastructure. Therefore, our perseverance and endurance as artists from the south are usually different from those in the north. I think that Africa's cultural production has always been underestimated by the global north for years. It is only in recent years the world has come to realize the potential African art has on the global market. And indeed, time has proven it right. 
The process of making the pavilion as a source of fundraising itself is made clear by the way the Cameroon Pavilion has operated in its debut in the 2022 Biennale edition. Entitled The Times of Chimera, the Cameroon Pavilion, curated by Paul Emmanuel Logamahop and Sandro Olandi Stagel, debuted not only Cameroon but also non-fungible tokens, NFTs, in Venice. Commissioned by Amand Abanda Maye, the Director of Arts Promotion and Development at the Cameroon Ministry of Arts and Culture, the pavilion had no government funding. The project was instead supported by private sponsors and investors from the Global Crypto Art Decentralized Autonomous Organization, a collective initiative that is on the rise on the so-called Web3, an internet-based infrastructure that uses blockchains. The organization GCADAO is responsible for the selection of the artists in the NFT exhibition. Artists do not pay to participate, but a donation of one or two works is suggested. Shortly before the start of the Biennale, the crypto art organization sold tradable passes on its website at 2.8 Ethereum, approximately 5,500 US dollars at that time, which guarantees to the holder exclusive benefits. During the Biennale, the works are not sold, but potential investors and collectors are encouraged to purchase and collect them before and after artists are also free to market their work. Global Crypto Art DAO is explicitly monetizing the exhibit even before it happens, selling tradable subscriptions in Ether, the second largest cryptocurrency, almost passing it off as a performance with the endorsement of the institution. Announcing something that is part of the Biennale with a price list is a bit obscene and contrary to the overall goal of such an event, which shouldn't be that of an art trade fair, despite there being clear signs that it is so. According to the art advisor Lisa Schiff, Venice has become fertile marketing and selling ground. Arguably, it always was. Until 1968, the Biennale had a sales office and kept a percentage of the sale price as commission. The first three days before its opening are usually reserved for art professionals, critics, artists, gallery owners and curators. In 2019, the organization of the Venice Biennale decided for the first time to allow collectors to buy tickets for 500 euros for inviting their own guests. Considering the intense crowds of the preview days, perhaps the decision was kept for the 2022 edition. In this context of lack of public funds, the best that can happen nationally is that, as in the case of Madagascar, the representation of the country becomes an individual representation of the artist and of the gallery that can afford it. In 2019, the Madagascar Pavilion was driven by the collaboration between the exhibiting artist Joel Andriano Miarisoa, his gallerists and private investors, 
with minimal financial contribution from the Madagascan government. Something similar happened in the 2022 African Art in Venice Forum when the conversation titled Focus Ethiopia with the aims to engage with contemporary Ethiopian artists on new practices and opportunities resulted in a dialogue between four artists. Merikoke Berhano, Tadese Mesfin, Tariku Shefero and Tefea Ergesa all represented by the same gallery in Addis Ababa, Addis Fine Art. Described on their website as the first wide cube gallery space for modern and contemporary art in Ethiopia and as one of the most important young galleries in the world, by Artsy 2019, Addis Fine Art moved into the exclusive new gallery complex at Cromwell Place in London in October 2021. A prominent member of the Egyptian art scene said that the Egyptian pavilion was closed during the 2022 opening week due to technical difficulties. But the Egyptian artist Muataz Nazir, who represented Egypt at Venice Biennale in 2017, said that when he showed five years ago, the ministry had not allocated a budget to pay for the pavilion. Claudia Fontes, Argentinian artist who represented Argentina in the 57th Venice Art Biennale in 2017, commented on her experience. I had to fundraise, meet solicitors, protect my family, my house, she says. I was like a one-woman company. It was very traumatic. Only now, two years on, can I enjoy what happened. Jimmy Ogonga, who curated the Kenyan Pavilion in 2017, faced a similar situation. He declared, we simply waited and waited. The few weeks before May 2017, when the Biennale opens, were a mixture of anxiety, speculation, and of course, deep frustration. When I came back home from Venice, I was exhausted. I was broke from working for two years nonstop without an income and broken physically and emotionally. Even the British artist Hugh Locke, who has taken part in three Venice Biennales, said, I have had work damaged, gotten lost, not been paid what I was promised. And once the entire Biennale was mysteriously cancelled, he recalled, other artists I know have had work left out in rain or sun, stuck in customs or not installed in time for the launch. The same happened to Brazilian artist Diego Arujo, who was invited to be part of the Ghana Pavilion, but his work was simply never installed throughout the Biennale. In Diego's words, I can say very little about the pavilion's specific experience. I'm not from the production of the pavilion. If I talk about the pavilion experience, it will be a very personal experience and a very bad experience. My view of the Biennale was tarnished by this experience. Ghana which made a remarkable debut in 2019, lost government funding one month before the opening due to Ghana's financial crisis. This meant that its curator, Nana Afuriata Ayim, who already curated the pavilion in 2019, had to procure the funds herself. 
According to an interview with Christine Ajudua, Afuriata Ayim said, I have a great network of people that I've built over the last 20 years. That's how it happened. People that I know and that I work with just spread the word like wildfire that the Ghana Pavilion had to be supported. In Ghana, I literally went knocking on doors and people just gave, gave, gave. And in Venice, the most beautiful thing was that we got so much support. We didn't have installers. We didn't have producers. All these people kept coming in, helping us to bead things, install things, to put this thing on the ground. I mean, it was incredible. The unequal financial conditions are further accentuated by the higher costs of participation from the African continent, or Asia, or Latin America, due to the greater distances as well as expenses that the European participants do not have to bear, such as visa costs. Visa application procedures are always marred by a great expenditure of time and energy as well as complications and uncertainties. Western visa regimes conceived to ensure the maintenance of northern privilege continue their mission, limiting freedom of movement and privileging northerners at every conceivable economic, social and political opportunity. As if these unbalanced economic possibilities weren't enough, it is not uncommon to witness hijacking of African pavilions by unscrupulous European curators, mainly Italian, acting in cooperation with African representations. In the past edition, the most striking case was that of the Namibian pavilion, but also Cameroon, which in addition to presenting a rather particular private funding, as we have commented before, reproposes the name of the Italian curator responsible for the double seizure of the Kenyan pavilion with a minimum participation of artists from Kenya in 2013 and 2015. In 2022, the Namibian pavilion features the land art project titled The Lone Stone Men of the Desert. It was credited to an anonymous artist known as Ren, publicly known in Namibia as a 64-year-old white man born in Johannesburg, South Africa, a member of the tourism industry largely disconnected from contemporary art and the country's cultural scene. The same can be said for the pavilion's curator, Marco Furio Ferrario, a strategic consultant with a specific focus on business growth. A group of Namibian artists petitioned the Namibian government through a campaign aptly titled Not Our Namibian Pavilion to withdraw its support for the National Pavilion, an effort that met with some success. The pavilion opened, but not without scandal, that led the show's main sponsor, luxury travel company, Abercrombie & Kent to pull out, along with the Italian patron Monica Sembrola. The artist's request that the pavilion be presented as a personal project of the Italian curator rather than a Namibian national exhibition was ignored. The Namibian artist denounced a poor and inadequate debut with an old-fashioned and problematic view of Namibia and Namibian art linked 
to the impromptu curatorship and to sponsors whose interests were clearly linked to the interest of tourism rather than the country's cultural and art sector. Despite the country's flag being prominently displayed at the entrance to the pavilion, the Namibian government's position remains unclear. As for the case of the seizure of the Kenyan pavilions in 2013 and 2015, the commercialization of the Cameroon pavilion and the re-seizure of the Namibia pavilion in 2023, these cases, instead of being quickly dismissed as curatorial disasters, should serve to underscore the Venice Biennale organizers' responsibility for creating an environment that allows individuals to exploit inequality between and within countries for cultural clout. Like an epic tale, after years of shameless appropriation by Italians, the Kenya Pavilion finally managed to free itself from this tangled web in 2017. Perhaps for this reason, the title of the pavilion was Another Country, but ended up finding itself again in other complicated money and visa matters. As the Kenyan artist and researcher Neo Mosangi describes, Ogonga and Onditi are making frantic calls to contacts at the Italian embassy because they have only just applied for their visas to Italy. It is a Friday. The visa center closes early and the two must travel to Venice the following day with all the artwork as luggage. Indeed, the story of the Kenyan pavilion feels like a fast-paced movie. Equally tricky is the case of the 2022 debut of the Namibian pavilion. Many are the questions raised by a representative of the Namibia group of artists involved in the petition not our pavilion, who prefer to be anonymous. How is it possible for someone to come in and take over without any regard to what is happening in the country and what is happening to its people? There have been many controversial pavilions in the past. How is this still possible? How is it possible that the same guy from the Kenyan fiasco comes back as a curator and acts in the same way, representing Cameroon without any Cameroonian artists? How was it possible for a Western country to march in in this way and convince our government to represent? After all the debate here, we met the Italians and we told them how problematic it was and how we felt not represented, and they completely ignored us. The main curator, Marco Ferrario, has not once reached out, and all these people are so detached from our art scene that nobody knows them. How was it possible for people who have money to buy your spot? All the sponsors are related to the tourism sector. They do not come in from the art scene. They never feature in the art scene. It seems that the Venice Biennale is a little sloppy on who represents which country and why. Although there is a difference between the exhibitions and artistic projects that are part of the Biennale and those invited directly by the artistic director and the board of the Biennale Foundation, the repetition of these curatorial kidnappings is a bit too frequent to think that the Venice Biennale institution is completely unaware of it. Especially thinking these proponents have to pay an amount of money that will allow them to use the Biennale logo and to be included in the edition catalogue. As the Botswana Pavilion remarks, 
The current national pavilion format definitely needs to change. Looking at examples from Namibia, Kenya, Ghana, and Egypt in recent years, it's clear that this format can easily become a breeding ground for oppression and exploitation. If it wasn't for affected artists collectively and publicly denouncing their hijacked or botched pavilions, this maliciousness would continue unchecked. I'm yet to be able to fully articulate an alternative format because private money must also be problematized. As Eric Otieno Sumba interrogates, the same organizers, the Biennale, that rightly supported Ukraine's participation have tolerated individuals making a business model out of non-Western country pavilions. Aren't both scenarios political after all? Are we not faced with yet another hypocritical European demonstration of partisan solidarity? The different formats that lead national representations are national governments and its institutions, initiatives of private art galleries that get the approval or endorsement by local governments, a mix of diplomatic partners, mainly the commercial branch and the private partners, artists and curators using their networks and sources in order to set up a pavilion in which they are the protagonists. While on one hand, private funds are vital in feeding the possibility of Southern artists to feature in Venice, attention still needs to be paid to how private funds may also be problematic, especially when they come from outside the country of representation, as demonstrated by the striking cases of Kenya in 2013 and 2015. Although in agreement with the thought of the curator Simon Njami, according to which African nations have not understood that art can be a soft and efficient political tool, we must also ask ourselves at what price we obtain the benefit of the soft power derived from having a national pavilion in Venice. Commenting on the national participation by African countries, the South African artist Pumlani Ntuli says, I feel it will, in part, it will be quite ambitious without the assistance or the support from the government. But of course, things can be quite, you know, they can be done better. What is quite maybe somehow disturbing is that level of engagement in relation to understanding how the arts within the global south specifically is situated in part yes our governments are not quite aware of this fact they kind of tokenize it and use it as a you know bait to make make as if they're doing something but i think as much as that it is important but it shouldn't really be placed within a political agenda rather than a narrative agenda that's supposed to speak or allow the voices within the region or the geography to you know, to speak. But of course, yes, the Biennale has its political agenda in part in relations to, you know, different countries. Of course, big budgets uh, also really about exerting a kind of ambition or presence, you know, within this context. It speaks more about what happens globally rather than just art itself, you know, so which is quite weird, but I think it's important that this happens and then the art also is kind of a channel rather than a token, you know, for these conversations. 
For these reasons, the announcements of the national representations of Benin in its debut and in Nigeria for the second time in the 2024 Venice edition must be welcomed but impose the obligation that African ministries of culture assume their financial and diplomatic burden. The last reflection that we would like to introduce concerns the potential and how the passage to Venice can positively impact the careers of artists, as well as influence the ways in which they look at their work. Colin Segajugo says, it's without doubt that the Venice Biennale opened new doors for Ugandan art on the global stage. The most immediate impact it's making is the inspiration and motivation that it has to younger Ugandan artists who would never have thought that Uganda would be represented at the world's oldest, biggest and most prestigious art exhibition. And that is the Venice Biennale. Akaya Kerunen, artist from Uganda, comments on her experience in Venice. It was interesting. It was hectic. It was intense. It was different. It was beautiful. And um, uh, did it open up doors for me? Yes, it has. Um, um, there are a lot of galleries and beautiful opportunities opening out that I doubt I would have otherwise come into if I had not been at the Biennale. But also, even if they would come, they would have taken a while longer. So yes, um, um, Venice has been pivotal in very many ways um, uh, in changing or transforming the course of my artistic practice and career. As also confirmed by Amy Bell, the curator of the South African Pavilion, the opportunity of interactions with art practitioners, collectors and institutions on this global stage in Venice is an invaluable opportunity to generate interest in art from South Africa and the African continent. In this sense, Venice Biennale seems to be more of a space of presence rather than representation. Nonetheless, the impression that emerges from talking with the artists is that the opportunities offered by the worldly gathering that Venice represents are in part lost. The most frequently recurring comment is about exhaustion, which in turn reflects on the possibility of using that space as a networking moment around the continent, the diaspora and the Western world. Afroscope from Ghana says, I connected with a couple of um, other artists from the African countries, um, not as many as I would have loved to, um, but just I think everybody who is there recognizes that if you if you are here showing work, then you have you must have some powerful story to tell or um, something interesting about you that could um, feed into another's work. And so now it's just up to us making the time to explore that um, a bit further, a bit deeper, and see how maybe collaboration can be born out of that. For me, that sort of conversation around collaboration only happened with Diego and one of the, the members of his team, um, Isaac, uh, and then uh, Ishmael. Like you know, but the other artists that I met was just you know this discussions about their work and, and where they are from and what they do. 
but we didn't spend enough time together for it to evolve beyond that. Um, I do remember a conversation I had about, um, I had with an artist from Ivory Coast. Her work I had been following online for quite a little bit. And so it was, it was great to meet her in person and to let her know that, you know, I find her work to be very powerful and, you know, it's just great to meet um, the person behind the work. Uh, but yeah, again, just the, the, the nature of Venice and at least for us and the time being so brief, I, I yeah, there, there wasn't too much um, more in that regard where, you know, I feel like, oh, I made this great connection and I look forward to working with this person in future. I'll say a lot more of those discussions happened with people who came to see our show and had questions about what am I thinking of next? Am I open to showing work here or there? It, it was not artist-to-artist connection enough um, for me. Diego Arujo said, Everyone was working crazily, very hard to have any kind of conversation with other artists. Pumlanin Tuli says, Most of the artists that have participated for the Biennale, I've met them in part in Johannesburg, maybe for a short period of time. Uh, and this was quite, you know, interesting. And somehow it's fitting to establish a very, like, uh, you know, sustainable stronghold in relations to engaging with the different artists. So in part, if one goes to another country, there was already a connection that's already built in a set of certain kind of familiarity and a conversation that's somehow, uh, you know, takes like, several steps. Like it's, it's just like ongoing conversations with, that are not like necessarily like limited by the Biennale, but they happen also uh, post the Biennale and uh, engaging in other different exhibitions. Fadzai Muchemwa curator of the Zimbabwean Pavilion says I kind of hoped to meet uh, other curators um, I kind of hoped that I would, there would be a platform besides that forum the, the Art in Venice forum that I would meet people professionally mm-hmm. and I was quite disappointed that um, everyone was running around and making sure that their pavilions were up mm-hmm. uh, for the opening week So now, in a world with around 320 biennales, 280 art fairs, and more than 1,000 major art museums worldwide, why is it still so significant to be at the Venice Biennale? Why, for artists coming from countries with limited resources or with other priorities and scarce resources made available for arts and culture, Is it worth passing through a so often stressful experience that is barely worth the kudos and recognition it brings? An additional question could be, is it enough to be displayed in the Venice Biennale to be incorporated in the international art market? We will try to answer these questions in the next episode where we will present the still-recognized importance of the Venice Biennale in the art world on a symbolic and real scale and the successes of African participations over the years. Precisely starting from these experiences and their makers, we will give some advice or indications 
on how perhaps the Venice Biennale should reshape its forms to adapt to a world very different from that of the year that saw its birth, 1895. A world that sees part of it increasingly determined to raise its voice and manifest itself as a creative subject and producer of knowledge and to claim its own autonomous space.